Hi, everyone. Welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Andrea Pearson, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Lindsay Baroker. And I'm Joe Lalo. Um, okay, so today we're interviewing, interviewing Dean Wesley Smith. Dean is an incredibly prolific New York Times and USA Today bestselling mystery and science fiction author. Some of the franchises he's written novels for might be familiar to our listeners. <laughs> uh, they include Star Trek, X-Men, Smallville, Aliens, Men in Black, and Spider-Man. And then he's been uh, focusing a lot on mysteries. His most known mystery series is Cold Poker Gang that takes place in Vegas. And he and his wife, author Christine Catherine Rush, teach multiple workshops and courses through their company, WMG Publishing. So, uh, yeah, thank you for joining us for the episode oh, today. My pleasure. Good to be here. Yeah. Um, Dean and I, uh, let's see, Dean does the business masterclass that I've been attending, and it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you. Yeah. The yeah, service that he and Christine author, author, he and Christine author, <laughs> author, authors. <laughs> I am... Can you tell what kind of day I've had today <laughs> since before we started recording? <laughs> all right. Okay. So we're just going to go right into questions if that's all right with everyone. And the first question I've got here is uh, you've been writing and publishing for a really long time, like really, really, really long time. <laughs> yeah, really, really long time. And I still have hair, which is just a shock. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you're a huge inspiration for me and other authors. Uh, my question was, what is, what was your big break? big break oh man we're gonna we're gonna okay do this <laughs> when it came to publishing and how did it prepare you for a lifetime of writing my big break um actually i don't i i think it was a whole series of to be honest with you um i i i think the the thing that set me on the right track after a whole bunch of years of being on the wrong track was uh, discovering a 1947 book that had Heinlein's rules in it. Those Once I climbed on Heinlein's rules and started writing regularly and following Heinlein's rules as best I could, I started selling. Um, you know, and um, I had done that when I first initially started way back in the early 70s and then fallen off of it and went into another, you know, what all the English teachers taught, which is not how to be a professional writer. And, uh, and once I discovered Heinlein's rules and business rules, from that point on, I started selling. And then from that, along the next seven or eight years, I think the breaks kind of came one at, a, one at a time. I was in the very first volume of Writers of the Future, which introduced me to a lot of people, um, a lot of big names, things like that. And then um, um, I sold my first novel in 1987 um, to Warner Books. and. Uh, from there, it just sort of picked up steam. Um, we did Pulp House Publishing back in the early, late 80s, early 90s. Just picked up steam from there, and it just sort of been on and on. Just every time it sort of stops, I do it again, climb back on. So, and indie publishing was a big break when it came around. Yeah. I'm curious how you got involved with all the Hollywood writing for them. Was that kind of in the 90s? Yes, that was... Um, Actually, I had bought a story for the first incarnation of Pulp House Magazine. I was the editor. It was our magazine. Pulp House Publishing was our company. And, um, and I bought a story from a gentleman by the name of John Ordover, who had just within months after that got a job as the Star Trek editor at Pocketbooks. And so he was calling to talk with Chris. At that point, Chris was editing the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And he was talking to Chris about something, and he said, oh, by the way, I just took this new job. Are you guys interested in 
writing Star Trek. And I had used to, back in the 60s, I had gone home from high school and first years of college every Friday night to watch an episode of Star Trek because there was no such thing as reruns or, you know, taping or anything else. So I literally wouldn't do things on Friday night just because of Star Trek. I was that level of fan. And so when John said, you want to write one? We said, sure. And it just sort of took off from there. And, um, but you have to already have a career before you can get into writing for the major media markets. And I'd already sold novels, had been around. We had Pulp House. I had already been in and out of New York a lot. Um, it was just, they basically were looking for fans that were also professional writers. And they found it with me and Chris. Chris went on to write Star Wars. I went on to write, you know, the X-Men and Spider-Man and things like that. Yeah, that seemed like kind of a golden era for that stuff. I remember Next Generation came out, and that was sort of when all the books started coming out. Yeah. Like before that, because I was a fan too. As a kid, I watched the reruns, but, you know, I, and I was looking all over, and I was so excited when the Star Trek books were coming out. Yeah, they um, actually, they'd been coming out before then, um, but they were written by, by fans that weren't professional writers, so they weren't very good. <laughs> they were basically beginning writers right, trying to write these, and they just had no sales and everything else. Um, Vonda McIntyre. Um, one of her first books was a Star Trek book. And she was the first time that they had brought a true professional to write a Star Trek book. This was before I, Chris and I started writing and, and some of the others. Um, and Peter David, you know, um, I was in that era. Vonda was slightly ahead. She was one that sort of led the way that made New York realize, wait a minute, we need professional writers to write these media books. And um, that's when that whole era started. And that's when they became better sellers. We had a, um, I had one of the uh, Star Trek books that hit the times list. And, and I think, I think the la- I'm still making royalties for us, you know, minor, but uh, um, I think it's like 1.4 million copies now on one of them. Um, that would be unheard of in today's market, of course. But back then that was uh, a good selling book. And uh, so it was just, um, it was bringing the professionals in. So it sort of was the golden era, but now there's still professionals writing them all. Uh, a writer by the name of Dayton Ward is doing his best to catch me. I bought his first short story in a Star Trek anthology as an editor, and now he's the second most published Star Trek writer. I'm the first most published Star Trek writer. He's the second most. And I got a hunch he's going to catch me because I don't write anymore on that, on Star Trek. But uh, Dayton's doing fantastic. Yeah, it's, it, they're still really good books. Still really good. Excellent. I haven't read them for a while, but I'm, uh, I enjoyed it. I spent a whole year reading nothing but Star Trek and hiding the covers because I was in school, you know, like middle school oh, yeah. or something. And girls didn't read that kind of stuff. <laughs> Other girls were hiding the covers because they were romance, you yeah. know, smutty novels. I was hiding my spaceship covers. Actually, there were, there were more women writing Star Trek during that period than men. Um, L.A. Graff um, were two women writing together under that pen name. And then, of course, uh, Diana and... Um, I'm not good with names, but they are. There were three or three or four women writing Star Trek in that period in the stable of Star Trek writers, and I think it was me and Peter David and and Michael, somebody. Um, I think we were the only ones that were the, the men writing. So there are actually more women writing Star Trek in that golden era, and there was only seven or eight of us in the stable. Um, so we wrote all the Star Trek books, sometimes under other names, um, but we wrote them all during that period of time for probably about seven, eight, nine years almost a whole decade of just the seven of us writing Star Trek. <laughs> that was it. All right. Well, good work if you can get it. But oh, yeah, what, made you, what made you transition eventually from doing that to 
kind of going independent and starting your own publishing company? I was fed up with New York, uh, mostly. We had had Pulp House Publishing back in the uh, um, back in the early. We started it in '87 and it lasted till the early '90s. Um, so we didn't want to do a publishing company again. And but I was pretty fed up with New York. Um, the contracts were changing. Um, the whole respect for authors was changing. Um, I had over a hundred and some hundred and six novels published in New York through traditional publishing. And by that point, it was just, I was just done. You know, I had been at it for 15 years and, uh, didn't really want to do it anymore. Um, so I went off and did something else for a few years. Nobody noticed. I still wrote a few other books and I was ghosting books and things like that. But, uh, I just was tired of the system. And so indie publishing is what turned me back to my own book. Excellent. And sort of leads me to my question. Like, so you had a tremendous career by, by pretty much any measure. You already had an incredible career. Uh, and then you went on to indie publishing. Uh, was your previous career an asset or a liability when it came to getting started as an indie? No, it was a liability. It was a huge liability. Um, and it's, I hear it from a lot of early writers that, oh, you were so lucky you had all this. Now, I didn't have any books. Um, the, my original books were under um, pen names that um, were do not disclose um, that, you know, because if I wrote a mystery or a thriller, it couldn't be, you know, they, they couldn't say, oh, this is Dean Wesley Smith writing as because Star Trek writer Dean Wesley Smith, you know, because the, so the Star Trek and the Men in Black and the, and the uh, uh, Spider-Man and X-Men, that really hurt original books back in those days. They, they really tainted them. So I always wrote original books under other names. Um, then the, um, when it started up indie, what happened is all those books were for sale on Amazon. And so I'd put up a short story or a collection or something, and it would be on page 43, you know, because all my Star Trek and, and the X-Men and all of that were filling the first pages. I couldn't get any traction at all. And so the only way that I could do it was just to sit down and, and either change my name and go to a completely and start up with a brand new name or to overwhelm my own career. And I had 106 books out under that old career. And so I had to overwhelm it and, and basically become a, uh, which is why I started you know, writing a lot. I, I published anywhere from 15 to 25 major books a year um, for those numbers of years. And I published them, what I called stealth. I just turned them, you know, gave them to my people at WMG Publishing and said, publish them. Don't promote them, just publish them. And so eventually I overwhelmed. So now if you look on Amazon, on like my author page or something like that, on the first page, you'll see like one media book and all the rest will be my originals. But it's taken me, you know, six, seven, eight years to finally overwhelm those books. So they were tremendous, tremendous detriment. You know, although I don't regret doing them, I love doing them. It's a, that's an interesting problem to have to solve. Do you yeah. feel like the career prior to your indie career, like, did it give you the tools necessary to make that uncomfortable transition? It, it gave me the understanding that I could be patient and, I, and that things took years to, to get done. Um, that was probably the biggest thing. It gave, me, it gave me a lot of practice and writing skills, of course. But there, when you're writing only media for a while, which I was for a number of years, um, you, you, you develop one skill set while other skill sets atrophy. And, um, you know, and so creating original characters and stuff, I didn't need to do that because they were already created for me in Star Trek and all that. The characters were already there. 
So having to balance my skill sets back up took some time. So that was a negative, but it was also a positive because I had gotten certain skill sets up so much higher uh, with all the years of practice. And But by and large, it was the attitude. It was understanding the business. It was understanding freelancing. It was understanding patience. So I could just say, well, I'm going to do five or six years here and not tell anybody I'm publishing anything. I, on my own website, I don't even announce when I put out a new book. I just don't. I just write them and put them out. And, you know, so I've written over 100 books now in Indy. And WMG started promoting last year with the Cold Poker Gang Fund because it started to take off. But that's, that's it. Nobody, I just put them out. I might change that this next year now that I've got it to where I want it to be. I may actually start telling people, oh, I just finished and it's just out or something like that. But if I, if I told everybody every time I wrote and finished something, that's all my blog would be. It'd be, you know, every two or three days, oh, I got this out every day. You know, I just, I mean, they get bored enough when I promote them, promote the uh, workshops all the time. <laughs> so, you know, it's just one of those things where you, when you're prolific, you just can't do, if you only have one or two novels a year, you can promote. You have, you know, 25 or 30 things a year, you can't promote. Yeah, that's an interesting problem. Most I'm actually, you know, kind of in the book a month area most months, so I understand. Uh, but yeah, I think a lot of our listeners are probably like, I, I cannot quite imagine that. <laughs> but uh, a good problem to have a lot of, you know, you've got such a big backlist and stuff too, that if, if they want to, you know, work on promoting that, I'm sure they have all sorts of material. To do. Too too much, actually, sometimes. <laughs> too much. We don't know which one to do next, which one to push next. So they, they, they decided the Cold Poker Gang was what they were going to push. When I turned one in a year ago in the summer, and I was moving Chris down here to Vegas and we were busy and they finally, you know, convinced me that I should just let them do what they wanted to do. I mean, you know, we have really good people at WMG publishing. And so I turned this book in and, and they said, can we promote it? And I said, I don't care. I'm too busy. Do what you want. And they turned it into this major bestselling series <laughs> just by promoting it. Cause nobody knew all those books were there. Oh, that's excellent. And I'm curious, I don't know if we specified, is WMG just you and Chris, or do you publish other authors also? Well, we publish other authors in our two magazines. Um, we have uh, um, Fiction River, which is a, um, you know, basically a quarterly um, anthology series. And um, Chris and I co-edit that, but basically that's Chris. Um, she, she loves it. She keeps track of it. It's been going now for I think we're up in almost 30, number 30 or in the 30s on volumes now. It's been going for quite a while. It gets lots of attention in the, on the literary sides, the literary awards, um, things like that. It gets no attention because we mix genres. Um, you know, we'll have a romance story right beside a mystery story, right beside a science fiction story. And so we get no attention inside the genres other than mystery tends to give it a lot of attention. Um, the... Um, and then we have Pulp House. We've reincarnated Pulp House in a second incarnation. Pulp House Magazine. I'm the editor of that. And it's been going now for um, two years. And uh, I buy stories from other writers for that. But only short stories and only in those. All the other books and, of course, Fiction River and Pulp House are ours. So WMG Publishing is only our books. It's got about a thousand titles now. And is, is that all? <laughs> yeah. It's ridiculous amounts. It's just crazy. 
Do you have any advice for uh, maybe authors who are right now just self-publishing their own work and are thinking maybe they do want to form a publishing company uh, and edit some anthologies and that kind of thing? Don't do it. <laughs> just Too don't much do work. It. Oh, good God, yeah. And, and it's the wrong focus for you. Um, the reason we can do it is because we have so many employees. Um, and, uh, you know, at, at one point we were, had nine employees. We have a 7,000 square foot building in Lincoln City that, that is still there and full of stuff and, and that. We don't have that many employees now, but uh, we have a lot of employees. And so we had the, the room and the space to do it. And Chris and I love editing short fiction. We just love short fiction. We would never edit anybody else's novels or anything like that. That's just not going to do that. Um, but we love short fiction. And, um, and so it just, it suits us. It suits who we are. It's our project. It's our voices um, in it, you know, as editor. Um, but no, it's not worth the time. If, if you're starting off as a, as a you got to have a publishing company to publish your own stuff, you know, in, in indie world. So you already have a publishing company. Keep your focus on your own work. Keep your focus on, on your stuff. Don't start promoting other people's stuff until you're way down the road. It's just not worth it. You may think it's going to be fun and worth it. It's not. It's just not takes a lot of time and a lot of effort that's awesome i can the only time where i can see only place where i can see it possibly working is if somebody just doesn't want to write anymore but they still want to be involved you know then then yeah if they want to move over from the writing to the publishing side that's perfectly fine They're but why no would way. they want to move from writing is my question <laughs> now, and some people burn out on writing i mean that's that's understandable you know it's understandable but uh um we keep it down for chris and i we keep it down to a, a minimum of work. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I basically read all the stories for Pulp House and then put them all together and do an introduction. And then that's the last I see of it until I get the finished book in my hand. That's nice. Yeah. I want to have more minions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> minions are great. <laughs> Although I don't think I'd ever call Alison Longuera a minion. <laughs> no, she's not a minion. <laughs> no. Basically, is a major professional in the business on the publishing side. She's, we got so lucky to find her. And she had she major surgery out. and she didn't, it didn't even phase her, it seems. <laughs> well, four or five months it did, but well, yeah. yeah, she had major brain surgery. But yeah, she's, uh, um, she's fantastic. She runs WMG Publishing. We don't run it at all. Yeah. She's the publisher. She's the uh, CEO. She runs the whole thing. I mean, Chris and I own the company, but she runs it. <laughs> it's hers. <laughs> She's All the right. boss. We call her the boss. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to transition to workshops, you know, that's still under the WMG publishing um, umbrella. Mm -hmm. um, you and Christine, or Chris, all right, it's weird calling her Christine. I'm so used to calling her Chris. <laughs> Chris is fine. <laughs> uh, you guys put on a lot of workshops. Uh, which are your personal favorites? And then I'll ask, I have another part of that question that I'll ask in a bit. Well, honestly, um, I like the master class, but it's ending this next year. Um, the one in, one in October 2020 is the last one in that structure and in that format. Um, I think the anthology workshop for me is the best one. And then Chris teaches um, three of the craft workshops where she's down inside people's craft. They're very limited. There are only 12 professionals that are coming, you know, come to them. Um, I think the anthology for me is the most fun. I get to read so much short fiction and and get to buy for Pulp House and other stuff if I find a story that fits. And I just love it. 
that's just that's the fun one because once you're through all the early stuff, the the workshop itself is just fun. You know, it's just reading stories and talking and going out to lunch with people and hanging around at night in the suite with people and stuff like that. So that's my that's my fun. I like the online ones too, but uh, you know, I think in for person. Long, that's the that's the one I like. So, which are the longest running, and how have they changed over the years? Uh, <laughs> um, the longest running one was. Oh it, no! It would have to be the master class, but it's changed dramatically over the years. Just dramatically, it started off as a two-week, twelve writers only, um, submersive thing in both writing and in business, and that was back in the traditional days. We started the first one of that in 1999 as an experiment with six writers, um, and uh, I call them the slacker six, but. They turned out to not be slackers in any way, shape, or form. In fact, you guys would recognize four out of the six of their names as New York Times bestsellers. Um, but we started with those six, and then in twenty twenty in in one we uh, did the first full twelve master class, um, and then um, and went from there. Um, but it's changed dramatically. It's not even the same. We cut. We stopped that version of it, and then started when Indy came in. We started this version that we have now that's really dramatically changed even from that first year. The first year we started it was how to be an indie writer, <laughs> how to publish, how to get your stuff up. I think we were doing PowerPoint covers, you know, I mean, it was just, it was just something. Um, but uh, now it's full upper level professional for indie writers, you know, and all the licensing and, and this, all the other stuff that we do now, it's going to, it'll be a good one this last time, but we're killing it. That's the end of it. The second longest run is the Anthology Workshop. That started off with an editor out of techno books by the name of Denise Little. And we called it the Denise Little Workshop. And basically, people it was a weekend workshop. People would turn in a story ahead of time. And on, Denise and I would go through them and decide whether we were going to buy them or not for the anthology. And then that day, they would also have to write a story overnight and turn it in the next day for a live anthology that would be in DAW or Bain or something like that. So a lot of those anthologies out of that uh, early 2000s that were in Bain and Doc were stories written overnight at the Denise Little Workshop in, on the coast in Lincoln City. The entire anthology. And I got a bunch of them on my shelf up here that are just all the authors wrote them overnight. We've got That's a couple of questions coming up about your thoughts on editing, but <laughs> we have a couple more first on, um, you know, on the workshops for authors who are thinking of doing maybe an online workshop or in person to learn the craft stuff. Are there any, you know, there's a lot of options out there now. Are there any red flags they should look for? Anything they should be careful when choosing one? Yeah. Um, with us, any of them are fine. I would start with the depth workshop on all the ones we do. Um, that's, the, that's the foundation workshop. Um, depth in writing. That's how to get readers into your stories. But on others, I would, I, the first thing I would look at is who's teaching it. And how long have they been around? What's their experience? Um, you know, and does it fit what you're looking for? Um, and is it at your level of writing? That's what I would look at. But mostly look at the credentials of the person. If they've only got two or three or four novels out and they're teaching something, go away, run. Um, you know, someone like Dave Farland, who's been a New York Times bestseller, been around since three or four years after I came in. Um, you know, he, he has a certain way of teaching that is down in the words a lot. Um, and that's perfectly fine if that's what you're looking for. Um, but Dave has the credentials. 
Dave Farland and Kevin Anderson's thing he does up there with uh, superstars, um, things like that. Look at the people behind it and see what their credentials are and see if they've moved into the modern era. If you've got someone who says, well, I'm going to teach you how I broke in and they broke in in 1987 like I did with my first novel or 1982 when I started selling short stories, they're not going to be any value to you. You know, it's just they're not going to be able to teach you. So watch if they're update, up to date. And number two, if if they have the credentials. And if they've only got three or four novels or something, run away. Just run away. That makes a lot of sense. And it's it's funny how easy it is to figure that out. And I'm sure a lot of people just, just don't look. Yeah. But um, all right. So when it comes to workshops, uh, let's say somebody's just getting started in their indie career. Um, would you say that focusing on craft or focusing on business like is, is one of those preferable to the other? No, they need to be a balance. In my opinion, you need to balance both. You can't, if you get too one-sided or the other, you're going to be in trouble at some point. Um, I think there's a third area in there though. Um, you got to learn craft and continue to learn craft. The minute you think you've got it, you're done as a writer. You're finished. You, you'll fade away in very short order um, if you stop learning. Um, and which is why Chris and I do so many workshops is because it helps us learn. You know, we keep learning. The second thing is, is the business. If so many writers I know are, are paying like far too much in taxes or they're not keeping track of stuff or they don't even understand intellectual property or copyright or, or licensing or any of the other stuff that goes on. So you've got to be learning that piecemeal and it's, it's a lot to learn and you never stop learning there either. I think the third thing is productivity. That's the other one. Uh, if you're not productive in this new world, you're done. You're just done. It, it's this new world has we reverted back to the old pulp era very very quickly in <laughs> literally a space of like five years, um, you know. And I would stay clear away from um, um, traditional publishing at this point in time until their contracts change, until other stuff change. Short story traditional publishing is perfectly fine. Their contracts are good. The rights revert within three or four months after publication. Um, they're good promotion. But uh, a book, traditional book publishing, the big five, they're going to take all your rights, maybe publish you, maybe not. Um, you know, you're going to end up with a scam agent because I don't hardly know of any agents who aren't scams at this point in time. And um, and the reality is, is they're going to take all your copyright and you'll never own the book again and you'll never get it back um, because they got to hold it for their bottom line. So Indy's the way to go. It's it's growing. It's becoming well, it's already a huge part of publishing. It's Can't even be tracked. Every now and then you, you see a, a graph where it's like, you know, indie authors as a cohort have eclipsed, you know, main oh. publishing. It's certainly in the ebook space. And they can't and they can't keep track of it. And you can, you know, if you're if your goal in life is to see your book in a bookstore, you can do that indie. It's yeah. not worth it. It's not a profit and loss, but if it's a if it's a bucket list thing, then you can do it in indie easy. Um it's no we're you know. Traditional publishers don't have, I call it magic fairy dust. They don't have fairy dust. They can sprinkle on the books and they appear in a bookstore. No, they just know how to get it in. You can learn how to get it in as an indie publisher too. Yep. All right. So one, one more question about uh, uh, craft workshops. This is a problem that like, basically my role on this show, I mentioned this in, and we have a group we were talking about, but I, my basically my role on the show is to illustrate that I have made all of the mistakes. Like I'm the what not to do. So uh, uh, like I, I knew early on that I didn't know business and I could write a book as illustrated by the fact I had written some. Mm -hmm. So I did almost all of my focus on business workshops. And you mentioned how you need to continue to learn craft. 
I sort of figured early on that I would know all of the craft I need just from continuing to write. And then I started going to places where there was both. And I discovered that every single time I had, uh, I, I had a craft panel, I learned a tremendous amount that really improved me as a writer. So, uh, like, I, I want to say how, like, again, you're, you're saying we need to balance mm -hmm. on what you're learning, but, like, um, what would you say, like, let's say you can't, you can't afford to go to, to a craft workshop. Mm -hmm. uh, like, is there as much to be gained just from, say, critique groups or things like that, or should you be focusing for, for professionals? Um, you need to, you need to put it this way. If you were going to go be a lawyer, um, you know, and you said, I want to be a lawyer and you know, you're going to go to seven years of college, you're going to spend all that money and all that time and all that effort to be a lawyer. So you can hang out a shingle in a little local town and be a lawyer in a local town. And that's what you're going to do. And you're not going to think anything twice about spending that money and moving to a different place to go to school and getting into a law school and doing all that stuff and spending all that money. And yet, professional writers are international writers. We don't hang out a shingle in Lincoln City, Oregon, or even Las Vegas. We don't. We function on an international level around the world. And yet, writers think, oh, I don't have to do that. I don't have to, I don't have to earn or learn as much as I would to be a little local attorney or a doctor you know, uh, where your, people's lives are in the hand. And yet we entertain people all over the world. And writers have this belief system as, oh, because I could write, my English teacher in high school said I was good, that that's enough. It's not enough. It's a continuous thing. thing. The problem with writing comes in is that writers can't see it. Okay. And, and so I, I'm constantly telling writers to study the bestsellers, the long-term bestsellers. And, you know, and then I'll hear back from beginning writers, oh, that Cussler, he can't write his way out of a paper bag. And I'm thinking, he's forgotten more about writing than you know. Um, same with King, same with Coons, same with Nora Roberts, same with Daniel Steele, and on and on. These people who've been around a long time, they're masters. Those are the ones that people should be studying. But you can study them by going to a store or online and buying their book and then just typing it in. You know, just type it in into your own manuscript. You will learn more by typing in the first couple chapters of a major bestsellers novel than you can ever imagine, ever imagine. Um, that's one way to do it. But if you have the attitude that you can't spend the money, that you can't spend the time, that you can't do it, you're not going to do it. That's the bottom line. This is an international profession, you know, and you have to, if you're going to be at the top of an international profession, you've got to give it the effort, you know. Yeah, you just have to. And I, I'm sorry to be so blunt about that, but it just has to be there. And there's lots and lots of ways to learn. But if you can't afford it at this point, then why aren't you typing in New York Times bestselling writers? Why aren't you typing them in? Why aren't you going online? But finding the, finding the places that are free, you know, and get what you can. Here's the problem what people can't see. Here's the analogy I use that tends to help people understand it. Say you walked into a giant building and you walk through the front door and this is a huge front door, more people coming and going just like this. Everybody in that, on that, in that mezzanine and in that big thing is a wannabe writer. But from the outside, that's all they think the building is, is that one floor. That's it. And if they just say, oh, I've got enough, I own everything that's on this floor and they go back out the door, they're done. Okay. What goes on is the building above that thing. Every time you find a staircase or find an escalator or find an elevator to get to the next floor, 
that's you've learned something. And every time you go to the next floor, you realize, oh my God, there's floors above me and the floors keep going up. I've been doing this for 40 years. I sold my first short story in 1974. Okay. And I'm still finding floors above. I'm still typing in other writers' work. Um, every time I get to something and go, how the heck did that person do that? What do I do? I go and type it in because I run it through my own fingers in my own manuscript format and I see it. And learning never ends. That's why I teach is because I get these questions from people that go, how do you do this? And I'm like, you know, I don't know. I've never thought of it that way. So I learn. That's a great way to learn. I love that the philosophy that there's always something more to learn. There's never ending. And you can't see it when you're standing in a mezzanine. You can't see the next floor. You just yeah. don't even know it's there. You don't even know where the entrances are. Yeah. That's the problem. So we're going to move on to actually writing. So that's a great segue for <laughs> writing into writing. <laughs> yeah. um, you write into the dark, which is a much better way to say pants. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay, so what advice do you have for authors who prefer not to outline when it comes to productivity? When it comes to productivity, you'll be a lot more productive if you just write into the dark. Um, takes I, Almost everybody I know has needs a trigger. Whether the trigger is a phrase, I use titles a lot, um, you know, or some sort of trigger that will sit them down and start them creating a character. And then if you understand depth in writing and how to pull readers in, you already got your first 400 to 2000 words, you know, just by, just by doing that. And then, and then the, the reality is, is, is that you just write the next line and write the next line. The best way to think this through is as a reader, we start on a book on page one and we read in a direct line all the way to the end to the last word. It's just a straight line, okay? And so early readers think, early writers, when you think, I want to be a writer and I want to write a novel, they think they have to write it like that, in that straight line, because that's the way they always read all those books, all those years, they always read them in a straight line. So the reality is, is, is no, you don't have to do that. In fact, you shouldn't. Um, that's why people think, oh, I've got to outline, oh, because how can I be so smart to put all that stuff down? Well, no, what, what you do is you kind of go along for three or 400 words, and then you come out of the timeline. And if you don't understand that concept, go read Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five or see the movie Slaughterhouse-Five. Pilgrim, Billy Pilgrim is the main character. He's unstuck in his life, in his own life. He can move anywhere he wants at any given point inside of his own life, from his birth to his death, okay? From the first word of a novel to the last word of a novel. You, as the writer, are unstuck in time. You don't have to stay on the timeline. You can jump up and go back. So basically what I do, my method and a lot of other pros, is that we'll write 300, 400, 500 words, whatever's comfortable. And then I sort of bog down and I immediately come out of the timeline, go back to the opening and go through touching everything again, fixing mistakes, fixing everything. I never write sloppy. Never write sloppy. That trains your creative voice to be sloppy. So you never put things in brackets. You never, oh, I'm going to come back to that later. You fix it now and get all the way through so that when you get back to that point where you stop, then you've got momentum and you just move forward another three or 400 words. And then you cycle again. So when I'm looking at a book and I'm watching, you know, reading, I mean, when I'm writing a book, if you trace my pattern inside that timeline, it would be cycle, cycle, cycle. Oh, got to go back farther to fix something. Cycle, cycle, cycle. Got to, oh, 
And it just would be this big bunch of loops all the way through it until I finally get to the end. I'm a one draft writer. It's all done. And it's all done in creative voice. I don't ever let my critical voice get anywhere near it, anywhere near it. In fact, I don't, I don't even look at it again after that. Um, you know, I have a copy editor and um, that's it. You know, Chris reads my first drafts and when, by and large, she's one of the best that she's got a Hugo for editing and she's my first reader. So I'm very lucky. But I ignore half of what she says. You know, I don't, I don't, it's, it's my book. I've been around as long as she has. <laughs> you know, I know what I want, you know, and, uh, and I just ignore it. And, uh, and I just let it be my book. It's my voice. It's my book. Yeah. She'll tell me if something's confusing or if there's a typo and I fix those. And so my second draft after Chris reads it usually takes on a novel, usually takes me 30 minutes. And then I send it off for the copy editor. And, and that's how you stay married for 28 years, as Kevin says. <laughs> you ignore what you need to ignore. And <laughs> never tell them what you've ignored. <laughs> I love it so much. Ever. You never have a conversation about the book after it's read. Make sure, make sure Chris doesn't listen to this episode. <laughs> well, she knows. And I, I do the same. And she does the same thing with me. I'm her first reader. And she ignores half of what I say, too. Nice. Just nature of the beast. And I was nominated like five times for Hugo's for editing. And, you know, she just ignores half of what I say to her because it's her book. That's the way it should be. You have to grow at, at a certain level in this business. You quit listening to other people about your work. You become an artist. You become, nope, that's my book. That's the way I want it. Don't touch my commas. Don't touch nothing. This is my voice. Leave it alone. You know, and, and I wish writers would get to that spot sooner rather than later with their work. You keep learning, you keep adding into your voice, but you don't let other people mess with it. Never show anything in, you know, in progress, never show a work in progress to anybody. Chris doesn't see anything I write until it's completely done. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an outliner, but I also try to get it pretty close on the first draft, and I do to you know 100%, because I find if you do have to go back and edit, you're in a different state of mind, you're in that editor mind, and I don't know, it's a little harder to, kind of see the story flowing along in your head. So I hate it when I hear the advice, like, just put something down, just just write. I'm like, no, no, figure it out first in your head and then write it. Otherwise, you're going to be editing forever. Yeah. Um, and I, you had mentioned Heinlein's rules earlier, so I just wanted to touch on that. You know, one of them, refrain from rewriting except the editorial order. Could you talk I, about some of the pitfalls? Did I get it wrong? No, or, you got it right. Okay. <laughs> If I, if I was writing at Heinlein's Rules right now um, at this point, because he wrote those when he was fairly young in his career, and he followed them up until he had brain issues, you know, which was, was a while, and then, and then he had to change because of the mental health issues he had. Um, most people don't realize that. But uh, um, what occurs with Heinlein's Rules is that third rule is what grabs everybody. But not really. The first rule is what gets everybody. First rule is you must write. Okay. And if there's a million people that say they want to be writers, that takes out 900,000 of them right there. They can't seem to make the time to write. And so out of the 100,000 that are left that even get to rule two, which is you must finish what you write, that takes out another 90 of those because the critical voice comes in and stops them. Oh, this isn't good enough. Well, how do they know it's not good enough? They're beginning writers. <laughs> you know, they don't know if they're writing something good or not. They would have no clue. And but but that critical voice is so powerful in so many people that it's like, oh, I don't want to embarrass myself. Oh, I don't want. So 
only about another 10% of what's left at that point actually get the rule three. And rule three is the deadly one because that's coming out of English classes. And that is you must rewrite. And you hear these people say, oh, it's not done until it's been rewritten. And it's like, oh, crap. You know, luckily I never, I bought into that in the 70s. I have to admit, I wrote my first two short stories, one draft, mailed them, both of them sold. And then I thought, oh, I'm going to be a writer. I better start learning what this is about. And then I started listening to English teachers and all the rewriting and all the other stuff. I didn't sell anything for the rest of the 70s. Nothing. Didn't even get anything but form rejection because I was rewriting them to death. And then it wasn't until 1980, all of 1981 that I found Heinlein's Rules. And from that point on, I stopped rewriting and started selling again. Wish I'd have realized that back in 74, that the real reason it wrote, I sold them is because it was my voice, my originalness, my story, and I didn't make it into sameness. Because when you rewrite, you create same. You, you, you polish and you take off all the edges. Polish, you, you hold a handful of polished rocks. They all look the same. They just all look the same. But if you hold that original rocks, they have different, you know, before you polish them, they have edges and sharpness and differences. And then you throw them in a, you know, throw them in a polisher. And that's what beginning writers do to their stories. And editors don't buy same. I'm sorry, we don't buy same. We've seen same to death. We don't buy same. We don't, and we can tell after a while, we can tell when something's been rewritten to death, literally by glancing at it. It's, it's sad. But of course, I'm an outlier. And Heinlein was an outlier clear back in 1947 when he said that. He was following, he was a pulp writer. And he was telling what the pulp writers do. As a lot of pulp writers said, I get a penny a word. I don't have time to rewrite. And well, that's it does he, seem, you yeah. know, you mentioned productivity, learning to be productive as being very important if you want to have a career in the business. And if you're going and rewriting it five times, you're probably consider, not going to be able to. Yeah, I consider it going backwards in your career. Um, if I'm writing something new, that's the fun, especially writing in the dark. That's fun. I love having fun. I mean, at my age, if, if I'm not having fun, I'm not doing it anymore. I don't need it. I don't need the money. I don't need this. I'm just not doing it anymore. Um, and so writing to me, writing new stories is fun. I get to create. I get to do this. But every time I'm always moving forward, looking forward. But if I had to rewrite, I'd have to turn around and go into my own past and rewrite something I'd already done. How boring and dumb is that? I know how it ends. I wrote it, you know, I don't want to rewrite it. And so, you know, it's just like, Ugh. so I always face forward. I'm always doing the next thing. And if you just focus on doing the next thing and not fixing something in the past, which you can't fix, it was, I, I consider everything I've written since 1974, a marker, a, a, like a milepost along my 40 year career, 50 year career, however long I've been doing this, you know, 45 years. You know, I consider it a milepost. So you can read a story. You can still read my very first published short story. You know, you can still read the one that I put in the, that's in the first volume of Writers of the Future 35 years ago. I have one in, I have one in volume 35 right now too, because they asked me to write one 35 years later. It's funny, like how, I don't know if it's funny, it makes perfect sense, how often you hear similar advice from people who have been at it for a long enough time, where I think Stephen King has a thing where it's like, never tell anyone a story that you're writing, because once you're done telling it, you don't want to do it again. Um, All right, so, but let's say. Let me add something on this rewriting thing. Realize that a lot of, if I was talking to other people besides writers, if I was in a group of my readers and fans only, I'd tell them I rewrote three times. (laughs) 
I just would tell them that because they have to have an expectation of that. But see, and that's because they all came through the same system. All of us did. They came through the English teaching system and the, the schools where everything is rewritten. And so if you're going to get someone to pay $5 for one of your books, they have to feel like you worked on it. So that's why you hear the big name writers saying, oh, yeah, but they're just blowing steam. Oh, yeah, I wrote, I put 36 drafts on that. You know, and Heinle, uh, Hemingway was the worst of this. He hated stupid questions, loathed them with a passion. You look at Hemingway, and he was a newspaper writer. He wrote one draft fast, hard on, banged it out on a typewriter, and turned it in. That's how he wrote Old Man in the Sea in very few days. It won the, Heming it won the Pulitzer, you know? And so, but yet he'd get these stupid questions. So he'd tell people, oh, I wrote Standing Up. Oh, I wrote, you know, 37 drafts. Because he would just jerk around new writers, figuring if they're too stupid to figure it out, then it wasn't his problem. Because he just got tired of all the stupid questions. And to this day, we're still trying to deal with Hemingway's stupidity. <laughs> sure. That's hilarious. Uh, okay, so let's say that, you know, like I, have, I have outlined and I have uh, uh, written into the dark uh, with roughly... Well, you outline, you don't write into the dark. No outline. No <laughs> outline. Uh, so the question is, like, let's say that you're, you're you know, you're pantsing, you're, you have an outline up front. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you avoid running into a dead end? Oh, you run into them all the time. So then is the trick uh, that like you see the dead end coming and start to plan for it? Or is the no, whole trick you, you find a way to punch a hole through the dead end? Yeah. Yeah. You do exactly. You just get inside your character's head. And how would your character solve it? It's it truly is that simple. And it, OK, think of it this way. Writing a book is like writing a roller coaster. You know, if you know, it just you don't know where the next turn is. You don't know what's going to happen. But you do know you're going to end up at the ending and be happy. Okay. Hopefully you don't fly off the track somewhere, but, but there's going to be points where you're going to feel like you're flying off the tracks. And that's the point of a good roller coaster is when you like, Oh, you know, is that going to really make that turn? Is it going to stay on the track? What you do, the simplest and, and I'll tell you the hardest to remember when you're in crisis mode where you think you've written yourself into a horrid corner is write the next sentence. Just back up a little bit and go get to that point where you feel like you're stuck. Don't try to figure it out. Don't try to go out ahead because that will that's your critical voice trying to figure it out. The critical voice is what's got you stopped. The critical voice. Your creative voice knows where it's going. Your creative voice is but it's just not telling you yet. So you go on and you just say, what is the next logical sentence after that sentence? And you just write it. And then you say the exact same question. What's the next logical sentence after that sentence? And pretty soon you pick up speed again. And then you then you get stuck again. You just Write the next sentence. It is such a simple piece of advice. It works every time. But the problem, the problem is you can't remember it when you're, and I, you know, I'll do that too. I'll come wandering out of my office and go, oh God, I got my characters. I'm stuck. You know, you know, oh my God. And Chris said, well, just write the next sentence. I'm like, oh yeah, thank you. And back in and write the next sentence. So I have that actually on over my computer now. So I've got um, questions about, there's, it's, they're all related about burning out. So the first one is, um, so I know you actually have dealt with some burnout phases. Pretty much every writer has after they've been around for a while. Uh, how do you handle it when you, like, how do you get through those? <clears throat> you know, stand up again. Um, do something different. Um, write the book you've always wanted to write. And see, burnout comes from pressure more than anything else of having to do it. You've gotten money pressure on it you put money on your right go get it go get a part-time job 
you know, something like that. Go do something different and, and take the writing and, and literally mentally and maybe physically and emotionally and pull it up and out and put it over onto a place where that's only going to be fun. That's only going to be fun. I'm going to go play over there. That's my play. And so stop telling your people that you're going to work. Don't, don't ever use the word work with your writing. Um, you know, you're not working. Working is what we all do and we hate. And that causes writers to burn out. You know, to me, writing is fun. It's, it's just a joy. Um, so just make it into the safe place. And so your world is burning out. You're tired. You don't want to deal with it. There's too much money pressures. Just clear all that out. Maybe go get a part-time job and then keep the writing in a fun little corner. And eventually it'll build back up. I really, really like that point. A lot of authors, they say, you know, getting a job is like the end all of everything, all of their dreams. It just destroys oh no. Oh no. their happiness. But I love that. That's, that's no. fantastic. It's, it's just actually relieving to think. It's actually it's the nature okay. of the beast. You know, yeah. over, the, over the years, I, I've been lucky because I've always been able to work inside of publishing on my day jobs um, over the decades. Um, but, um, you know, no, there was one place, one point where I was kind of, like, oh, I wonder where the next contract's coming. And somebody came up to me and said, Dean, you, and it was after Pulp House, and said, Dean, you want to edit this thing called VB Tech, the fiction section of VB Tech? I didn't even know what VB Tech was. Virtual Basic Technology Magazine had 250,000 readers. And they said, we want to do a science fiction section in two stories a month. And I'm like, sure, we'll pay you this. And so, you know, I ended up for two and a half years being the fiction editor for VB Tech Magazine. And, and all I did was invite my friends. I mean, I went to every friend I had, Harlan and Jack Williamson and all the big names at that period of time and said, write me an original story. I'll give you 10 cents a word. Nice. It, was, it was the easiest job and they paid me a lot of money to do it because it was a big, huge magazine that nobody inside of any fiction area even knew existed. And we couldn't get it any traction. In two and a half years, we finally gave up of getting it traction. They, nobody in science fiction and fantasy would even read it, even though it had Harlan and Jack Williamson and Mike Resnick and all the big names and Chris and all kinds of, nobody would read it they wouldn't, because it was BB Tech Magazine. It was a computer magazine. So you kind of actually already answered my other questions. I was just like, you've already given advice for how authors should handle it. And then you've also said how you avoid it. I mean, do you ever run off and get a, a part-time job? <laughs> well, I did, sure. It wasn't part time. I actually quit writing. Oh wow! Um, yeah. Yeah. When I burnt out in uh, um, of and didn't want to deal with New York anymore, and wanted nothing to do with New York, um, and realized my edit, my agent had been stealing from me, and you know and things like that, and I just went, okay, I'm done with this system. I'm finished. Even though I'd been a New York editor, I mean, I edited through pocketbooks and other stuff at times. Um, I just didn't want anything more with it, so I went and played professional poker. I was and, hoping you'd mention that. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of my I favorite parts of your history. Number of years, actually. I still wrote a little bit because they were throwing, I, I, I actually said, okay, I'm not going to take any of this work for hire. I'm not going to take ghosting novels unless it's for X amount of money. And at one point I had, uh, you know, I said, I won't take anything under $60,000 for a novel. And I can write a novel in about seven or eight days, an eighty to 90,000 word novel. It takes seven or eight days to write it. So it's no big deal. And they had to throw sixty to seventy to $80,000 at me before I'd even touch it. And that was in my poker days. And I made a lot more money playing poker. I was a professional poker player. I played in World Series and lots of tournaments and stuff. And um, but I just, that kind of cleared my mind. 
And then when the indie movement came in, that's the only thing that brought me back. Otherwise, I'd still be a professional poker player and I would never teach. If I'm not writing, I'm not teaching. That's my absolute rule. Um, you know, I had some people over the years that I admired highly, but they quit writing and became a teacher. And I won't do that. Um, like Algis Budras, one of my, one of my mentors, but he became a teacher and an editor. He never, never wrote anymore. And I'm like, nope, the minute I stop writing, I'm done teaching. And so I got to be writing and being current and I'll still be teaching and being current. Otherwise I'm done. So I wasn't doing any teaching in that period of professional poker at all. I wasn't doing anything. And then suddenly I'm back in the indie movement and writing a lot. So, makes sense. Oh, of course. Uh, and I know that you've seen a lot of change in the industry and I'm sure you've seen many authors just kind of disappear. What is it that you guys have been able to do to just adapt and continue to change and be able to keep making an income from your writing over the years? Um, I think it's watching other people go away, sadly. Um, writers tend, in the old traditional days, they tended to have four or five books. Um, we had a, a real good friend of ours who was one of our supporters and a bookstore owner, and he was a kombucha. A lot, if you either loved him or you hated him. And his name was Bill Trojan. He died about uh, 2011 and um, at Worldcon, actually. And um, um, by and large, his attitude was when we first came in is that he gave he called me a neo pro for the longest time and his rule was when i published my 10th novel through new york he would start calling me a professional because most most never got to 10 most never got to 10 they they would burn out at three or four and the first time i ever met him i mean i walked up to his table i had a story in a damon knight anthology and it was on his table and i said i got a story in there would you like me to sign it and he looked up at me. He'd never, we'd never met. He looked up at me and he said, why would I want some neo-pro defacing my book? And I'm like, okay, screw you. That's not quite what I said, but it was fairly close. And I walked off and then we became best friends after, you know, a number of years later. And that was the attitude he always had. So when I published my 10th book, I walked up to him, signed, I had the book signed to him, walked up to him, handed it to him and said, this is my 10th published novel out of New York. Am I now a professional? He said, yes, you are. And we went on from there. But, uh, you know, that was the attitude. Indy has a different set of rules now. I think Indy is, can you survive for five or six or seven years? And, you know, a lot of people can't do it. They just can't do it. So we've watched so many people go. What they do is they get themselves in a position where they burn out quick. They can't sustain the pace that they've set for themselves. They've made writing their, their work and becomes hateful and they can't, and they're pushing themselves. They're rewriting everything. That's, that's death after four or five books, you know, in this modern world, you can't be prolific and do that. Um, it's just the nature of, of the beast at this point. So how do we stand up? We just keep going. Every time something knocks us down, we go, yeah, <laughs> move on. There's always, you know, and nothing matters. Nobody cares. That's the real thing that beginning writers don't understand is nobody cares in this business. You care, maybe your one of your parents care if you're lucky. If you have good parents, maybe one of them cares, but nobody maybe your spouse cares. You know, some. But by and large, nobody cares. So you can write you have tremendous freedom to write what you want to write. If you get a rejection, nobody cares. If something sells, nobody cares. You are total freedom to dare to be bad, to try new things, to have fun. 
Because when it comes right down to it, nobody cares. And that is so freeing. It really is. And if you're in this business because you want a whole bunch of people and success and fame, you're in the wrong business. Yeah. You know, I mean, totally in the wrong business. There's like six authors that anybody knows what they look like. <laughs> it's just a thing. I but, don't think so. I think <laughs> Nora Roberts, Steve King, Dean Koontz could walk right by you on the street. You'd never notice them. It's true. Um, all right. So we've talked a little bit about like, there's a lot of reasons that a, you might have a dip in your career. We talked a little bit about like personal ones. And mm -hmm. there are also external reasons like just mm -hmm. a seismic shift in the, in the industry. Uh, do you handle personal and external changes differently? Like, is it always just pull yourself up? Or, like, how do you reassess when something happens that maybe was out of your control? Yeah, oh, yeah. You always, you always step back and reassess. Um, in fact, Chris and I have a habit of, of um, looking at the coming year in December every year. It, it started, yeah, that's what freelancers should be doing. You should always plan out what your next year is going to be um, and what you're doing and where your money's coming from and all that sort of stuff. Um, now it's pretty much the same. I mean, health issues, that's what happened with Chris. Um, you know, she was derailed for a couple of years, although she kept writing through it, um, as much as she could, but it, she was down to not being the prolific Chris that we all knew. Um, you know, and, um, now she's back to complete health, you know, health issues will do that. Just aging will do that. You know, I'll be 70 in my next birthday. So, I mean, you know, aging is, is the nature of the beast. Um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of one of those things where the seismic shift in the business, you just roll with them. You just, I, I'll, I'll tell you a real, real, real quick story. The only reason I have anything to do with indie publishing is thanks to uh, two writers by the name of um, Scott Carter, uh, Scott William Carter, great writer, and Michael Totten who was a major reporter and now is a great writer, fiction writer. They were both students of ours in Eugene, Oregon. And um, they, you know, they were young, they were in college. And when the indie movement started and the Kindle first came out, Scott and Michael were just badgering us to come and have, and I wanted nothing to do with it. In New York publishing, back in the 90s, we were having meetings about indie, about, not about indie, about electronic books. And then in 95, we were having more meetings because the sky was falling. Electronic books were going to change everything. In 2000, I have a trophy up here on my wall that I am in the top 25 bestsellers of electronic books in the year 2000 in Rocket Books. Okay. So by the time 2009 and 8 came along, when the Kindle was coming out, the sky had fallen too many times for me. I was done. I wanted nothing to do with this electronic. It wasn't going to happen. I wasn't going to see it. I was done. And Scott and Michael, we're on the cutting edge of it. And both of them said, hey, let's, we got to tell these guys. And so they badgered us to come and have dinner with us. And over that dinner, they made me believe that there might be something. So Scott came over to Lincoln City and put up a projector and told us how to put in books into Amazon and into Barnes and Noble at that time and into Smashwords at that time. And that was the only three places you could put them out. And he showed us how to do covers. He showed us how to do it. And I went, oh, this is fun. So I put up two of Chris's and two of mine in one afternoon, two short stories. And then proceeded to forget about it. I was playing poker, didn't care. I was doing a, I had a, a, a book that I had to write on a, that was a ghost novel that someone had thrown a lot of money at me for. And two months later, Chris came in and said she'd made $12, $15, something like that off of those two short stories. And I realized at that moment, those guys were right. And that was the police shift. I literally did not play another hand of poker after that. I just did nothing but indie publish. 
and was Scott was at the last business masterclass, wasn't he? I met him. Yep. He, Scott Carter. He, yeah. He's the one that came up with the would I be better off writing, isn't he? Wibbo. Yeah, Wibbo. That's, that's gonna be on his gravestone, I'm fairly certain. Would <laughs> I be better off writing? That's how you that's how you ask any question. If you say, Oh, I'm like for example, the question would I be better off publishing other people's work? No. Would I be better off writing? Yes. You know. <laughs> question on that one's very easy, but that's how you, a lot of this stuff, you always say, would I be better off writing than promoting this last book? Yes, you'd be better off writing because your best promotion is your next book. Totally agree with that. I wasn't able to release a book from January through October and partially oh. because I had a baby and yeah, there were some <laughs> life issues going on there. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But I mean, my promotions, like they didn't, they weren't as effective during that time because, you know, I wasn't releasing regularly. You don't do books? So. Anyway, so you offer um, a lot of services to authors through online and in-person workshops and your blog and your interviews and things like that, like what we're doing right here. Um, you keep yourself really busy. You run a company. You do all sorts of things all over the place. Well, Allison runs a company. Allison runs help. A company. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the CFO. I handle all the money. I, I write all the checks. Yes. So what are the biggest tips you have for authors dealing with crazy and busy life, um, lives and schedules and who still want to be prolific? Make time for it. Um, five minutes here, 10 minutes there, 15 minutes here. Um, writing isn't a carve out two hours and hope the world leaves you alone. That doesn't work. World never leaves you alone. Um, you, so you just get yourself into a mindset and it's a mindset. It is a mindset because you'll, you'll believe, Oh, I need two hours to gear up and to get going. No, you don't. No, just 15 minutes gives you 200 words, you know, and, then you have another 15 minutes, then another 15 minutes. Pretty soon you've got a thousand words done for a day. And that's a lot of books in a year. It just works out that way. And just try to do it every day. Just every day. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't, I, Chris has a t-shirt that she got from Downton Abbey that says, what's a weekend? There's just, there are no weekends for writers. <laughs> just what's a weekend? We don't know what a weekend is. We can't even remember sometimes when a weekend goes by. So, you know, no, I just, yeah, we do a lot of things for writers trying to keep them motivated, trying to keep them teaching, that sort of stuff. You know, try to keep them learning, I guess is what I should say. It seems like the people who are really driven will find a way. There's people on Wattpad that write books on their phones, you know, Absolutely. while they're at their kid's soccer match or something. And yeah. I can't imagine it, but, you know, they, they get them done. Yeah. Every so often I'll do something just to break up my routines, like I'll grab my iPad and go off to it, go off to a, a buffet here and, you know, and just sit in the buffet for three or four hours with my little iPad, you know, sending everything back every so often back to my computer here in, here in my office. But uh, yeah, I pretty much, yeah, I just do it to break things up just to get do something different. So there's always ways of doing it. 10, 15 minutes is more than enough. So people who are really busy, find 15 minutes, you can find it. My last question for you as someone who's written under numerous names and in numerous genres is just, do you have any tips for the authors who they're just, that's their muse. They want to be in different genres and maybe they want to have a number of pen names, but it, you know, they see people really focused on one niche or one genre, maybe doing better than they are. Uh, have you, do you have any tips for those folks? Write more. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta overwhelm the system. Um, and put it all under one name. See, everything is dealing with one name these days. Everything is tracked by name. So my mystery novels are under Dean Wesley Smith. My science fiction novels are under Dean Wesley Smith. 
Um, just make sure you're clear on your covers, clear on your sales copy that it, what it is. I mean, I tell people it's a mystery novel. It is not one of my science fiction novels. It's not one of my, you know, um, Brian Street novels or my humor novels in Poker Boy or any of the other series that I do. It's, it's simply, it's a mystery novel. It's this. And so you put it all under one name. Then it doesn't matter what you write. You know, and some of your fans will go, um, basically, um, well, I like his mystery novels. I don't like his science fiction. That's perfectly fine, but they can find them all. I'm taking notes right now. Write more than the people, you know, that are your competitors. I'm like, this is, this is good stuff. Yeah, I but mean, keep it all under one name. That's the yeah. key. I'm, I, I have more pen names than we can still find because I can't, I can't track them all down. But keep them all under one name. Just be really clear on your blurbs, your sales copy, and your covers. Make yeah. sure they're branded to whatever genre they're in. Okay, so um, from the business masterclass this past year, I learned something about you that really surprised me, and that was the length of book you prefer to write. Mm -hmm. um, what is your favorite length, and how has that changed over the years? Oh, traditional. Um, my first novel was 60-some thousand words long. Because back in the um, late 80s, that was the, it was still growing at that point. Um, the, uh, see, authors are forced in traditional publishing to write to contract. We sign a contract. And, um, and what occurred from, oh, the early 80s up until mid 90s when the distribution collapse happened is that publishers had to charge more for their books because of their overhead and all the other stuff in New York going up. So the only way they could do that is get the, because paper's the cheapest part. That's nothing. And so all they, the only way they could do that was to get the authors to write longer. So every year there was contract creep. And when I started, my contract was 60 to 70,000 words. When I ended in New York, it, they were all 90 to 100,000 words. You know, and that over, that was over a 15 year period. But before that, when I grew up writing, all the books were 30 and 40,000 words. All of them, all the mysteries, all the science fiction. There was, it was rare. I mean, Dahlgren was a monster book when Samuel Delaney came out with that in 1970 something or late sixties. That was a huge book. That was like 150,000 words long. It was gigantic. The Tolkien rings were these gigantic things. If you look at them now, they're nothing, you know, and, and so the reality is that back in those days, 40 to 50,000 words were what I grew up reading. That's my, that's how my clock works. So the minute I was free to do what I wanted to do, I snapped right back to that. All my novels are in the 50,000, 40 to 50,000 word range. Also, they're a lot easier to write and they're a lot cleaner. They don't have all the, the goofy side loops and stuff that you have to do to pad a book to 80 to 100,000. And I had to pad all the time. I would always finish a draft for a New York publisher and it would be 65,000, 70,000 words. And I'm like, okay, I can't turn this in. It's under contract. And I would have to go back in and put in the characters going off on a little thing and then bringing them back, you know, it's just so annoying. I hated doing it. It felt like it was ruining the book, but now I can do what I want. So my books are 40, 50,000. Every so often I'll jump to 60, but only if the story demands that I write what the story demands. And that's what my brain comes spits out. So my last hundred novels have been between 40 and 50,000. My first hundred were between 70 and a hundred thousand. Wish I could have done those earlier. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
the uh, like and I, you know you say this is that's the length of book that you sort of that naturally comes out of you it's what you, mm-hmm. what you gravitate toward let's say that the book that naturally comes out of you is longer than that it, it it's like it's the common wisdom obviously is that is that uh, if you write shorter you get more books out like there is there is utility to writing shorter is it worth trying to train yourself to write shorter or should you always shoot for what your comfort do what do write the book you want to write write the story you want to write that's the only success down the road is just write what you want to write. Um, no matter what it is, no matter what genre it is, no matter what some silly marketing advice that someone's given you, write, write the, write the book you want to write. It's, it's the only way you can be long-term, you know? I mean, I love Star Trek. I love Spider-Man. I love, I mean, I own comic stores, just sold our last comic store two years ago, or actually last February. Um, you know, I've owned comic stores and everything else. So I love writing Spider-Man and X-Men and all that. Write what you love. You know, it's it's just no fun not writing what you love or writing the market. Yeah. That leads me to a, a follow-up question because um, I have a series where the first book was like 75,000 words and that was the length of that book. It just felt right. But I'm more like you. My natural length is 40 to 50,000 words long. And the second book in that series was 40,000 words long. So they felt like I cheated them because the first book was 75,000 words and the next one was 40,000. How do you handle that sort of a situation you're the writer i don't care don't care (laughs) you're in control you're the god of your own universe just say yeah that's just how the story came out be real cheery with your fans you know just how the story came out and everything else and you never know what's going to come out next yeah i just i love the the don't apologize just say that's what it is yeah yeah when you said that in the business masterclass, so that was your natural length. I was sitting here thinking that like, like Lindsay's fantastic. Her natural length is like 400,000 words. And so. <laughs> See, Joe and I grew up reading epic fantasy. So maybe it's whatever you read as kids. I, I think it's 100%. It's where you, how your mind formed around length. So and then length. how does that explain me? Because I was reading Michael Crichton growing up and his aren't 40,000 words long. Yeah, but they're not that long. They're are not. they not? I don't know how long they are. No, Crichton's books were tended to be about 110, 120,000 words and shorter earlier on. Andromeda Stain, Strain, I think, was only a 50,000 word novel. Yeah, but that's still like almost three times longer than my natural length, uh, you know, the 110. But, but it's still, it still, it made me feel better. Just let the story be what the story wants to be. Yeah. I, I mean, Chris is doing that now. She just came out with a story that we could barely get into hardback because it was like two pages underneath the maximum that we could get into hardback. And that was the Renegade that just came out under in her diving universe series. And now, you know, she's going on and, you know, and I'm fairly certain the next one will be long too. But you never know. You know, she, she's all over the map, all over the map. And you <laughs> write what you want to write and don't care. <laughs> you know, just don't care. I, I love all these things. All these things we're talking about, Chris. Ignore half of her advice. And she's just all over the map. <laughs> she's all over the map. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So last question for you. Uh, you have a magazine that's just for writer or just for readers and it's only stuff you write, correct? That's right. Okay. Yeah, it's called Smith's Monthly. Smith's Monthly. Okay. So what do you put in it? How do you keep it up and how have readers responded to that? Well, it, it, it started off when I started into the indie movement and I knew I had to be prolific and I knew I had to, I was, I really sucked at, at being, um, what's the word for it? Um, organized. And I thought, I got to have some vehicle to organize what I'm doing, at least the stories I want. And, um, and I was writing, I write about 50 to 60 short stories a year. And, you know, and then I was doing, and then I'm, you know, anywhere from 12 to 15 or 16 novels a year. 
And then I do collections and other big books too. And so one of the aspects of, of that is that I thought I, I was, I have a, I was a pulp collector and a digest collector. And so I was, I had a whole, was holding a Mike Shane mystery magazine in my hand. And I'm like, oh, too bad Mike Shane didn't actually write every story in that. And I heard myself say that. And I went, hmm. So I started talking to Chris about it. And she said, yeah, you could do that. Just call it Smith's Monthly and put one novel every month and four or five short stories. So it's 70,000 to 80,000 words of my fiction. And I do an introduction in it and, you know, and promote my own books through it, you know, do little ads. Like it looks like a regular magazine. It's, it's, uh, well, that's old house. Oh, my big run of Smith's Monthly is back up there. I can't reach them. Um, but, uh, you know, and I got 44 issues, 44 months in a row. I just kept doing that. And so there's, you know, there's um, 230 or 40 short stories that are in there that have been published in there. Some have never been published anywhere else. I, I sort of fell down on getting them out indie, you know, independently. So, you know, there's a, there's half of those 200 short stories are, are original just to Smith's Monthly. Um, my idea was to publish the novel in Smith's Monthly, then publish it independently, standalone, a month or so later, and then and then put up all the short stories independently. So, I mean, I'd have Smith's Monthly selling, and it has subscriptions, and then like that. Then when, when Chris got sick, um, I, it went on hiatus. And so my last one was uh, June or May, two years ago. And, uh, and so I'm going to bring it back and with number 45 and, and see how far I can go with this one. My goal is to get past 100 copies, 100 issues. But it's, nice. it's just a way of me to keep track of everything. More and you've done, you've done Kickstarters for those, right? No, never for Smith's Monthly. For oh, Pulp okay. House, oh, for Pulp, Pulp House, House Magazine we've done. But no, I did a Kickstarter last January for Make 100. I wanted to take 100 of my, of my short stories and make them into paperbacks, individual paperbacks, which you can do these days. And, um, and I love those little individual paperbacks. And so I had to do original covers, wrap covers for all of them and like that. And I'm about halfway through that right now. And now, so, these are, these are like physical magazines that you're doing, right? And yeah, how do you physical. handle that? I mean, with like readers, I mean, you print that once a month and you mail it to them. And if they're, if they, if they subscribe to the paper copy, which is more expensive, they also yeah. can subscribe to the electronic or they can get the electronic or PDF copy. Yeah. And how do you handle sales for it? We just, I just, every so often we'll make some announcement on it or it's up no, I mean the, sorry, the money part. Do what? The money part. It goes, it's just a subscription through, okay. you know, uh, they keep track of the subscriptions up in WMG. Okay. You know, I do all the layout for it because I want to be in control of it. So I actually do the InDesign files and everything else for it. And then just send it to them and then they put it up. They put it up on all, you know, they put it up wide and then they put it up, um, you know, and their subscribers. I think in a couple of the Kickstarters, we actually, for Pulp House, we actually said you can buy all four of the magazines from the WMG does one of which is Smith Monthly. And so, you know, there were two or three people every time we do a Kickstarter that actually su subscribed to Smith Monthly for some reason or another, even though there hasn't been an issue for almost two years. So yeah, this is, you. it's really, I don't know, it's something I've always wanted to do. You know, the, I love the magazine idea. It's an organization system. Yeah. That's how I looked at it. It's just an organization system and it gets them up. And put it this way, it's another cash stream. See, yeah. writers in indie, we need to be cash stream focused. And so it's, it's just another cash stream, nothing more.
And so I, I get the trickles in, but all 44 of them are still for sale. Nice. And yeah. that's on your website. Oh, no, it's up on WMG Publishing. Okay. WMGpublishing.com. Yeah, I think so. WMGpublishing.com. Yeah. And it's up there and you can just look at it and just sort by things and you can just hit Smith's Monthly and it'll show you all the issues. I will have a Smith's Monthly website. It's three quarters of the way done. It was an older one and I'm revamping it now. And that'll have all my stories and all the Smith's Monthlies and all the novels. But that's a ways away because I even had an app on it for a while. Never launched the app, but I had finished the app. So I was going to have a Dean Wesley Smith app. I try everything once or twice. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> Sometimes you got to try the stupidest ideas. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode. I just love that it's, I mean, every time I listen to interviews with you, you've been in the business for a long time, but you're not stuffy about it. And you offer a lot of advice and a lot of, you know, inspiration to authors who are, you know, doing it for a long time and just starting out. So yeah, I've been taking notes. I'm excited. It makes me just get pumped up, you know. <laughs> well, I feel like I'm still new in this business too. Even though I'm I'm an old old fogey now and and been at it a long time, I still feel like I'm learning every day. And that's that's fun. I enjoy the fun. Yeah. So um okay, so thank you so much for joining us. Um thank you for having can me. you where do you want people to go when they want to look up look you up and get information on you? I think the best place would be right now, um, if you want to know about the workshops, the online workshops and stuff, come to DeanWesleySmith.com. That's where I do little hints every so often and, you know, get snarky about different stuff and things like that, you know, um, about rejections the last couple of days and things like that. But uh, um, the, um, or I announce workshops, online workshops that are new, things like that, DeanWesleySmith.com. Um, and if you want to know more about all my writing stuff and the different series than I do, just go to wmgpublishinginc.com and um, just click under my name, sort by author, and it'll be a lot. It'll be a lot. And of course, you know, you can Google me or whatever. I don't have any, I, I need a new Wikipedia. No one has updated my Wikipedia page for like a decade. <laughs> so I can't do it, you know. So, so any of you out there want to update my Wikipedia page, have at it. <laughs> Somebody, I can't get anybody to seem to do it. Well, I guess it's not that hard. It's just, I can't do it because they won't let me. All right. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap up now, if that's okay with everyone. Okay. Got I see nodding. Minutes. We are okay. All right. Okay. So yeah, thank you everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show today. Um, we'd like to thank Joshua Pearson for producing the show and our listeners again, uh, those of you who help us out by supporting and sharing news about our podcast and leaving reviews, uh, please visit six, sixfigureauthors.com. That's the number six for the episode notes and to leave a comment or to ask a question for a future show. And we do have our Facebook group still. So search for Six Figure Authors and check out the show notes uh, for the link to that. Also remember, please answer those questions because occasionally we still have authors who don't answer the questions and we're like, we want to verify that you actually listen to the show. So. <laughs> That's it for today. Uh, we'll talk to everyone later. Bye. Bye-bye. So long, everybody.